Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's always the quiet ones, the folks who don't say much, who don't act up or lash out. They're the people usually with something to hide. Sure, they go to their jobs every day. They don't do anything out of the ordinary. They might even seem perfectly fine on the surface. They're the kind of folks you wave to on your way to work in the morning, or their kids might play with yours. And then suddenly they're on the news for doing something strange and horrifying. But not Harrison G. Dyer. He was different. Oh, he had plenty to hide. He just wasn't quiet about it. Harrison was born in Rhinebeck, New York in 1866. His father was a chemist who had done well for himself and had left his fortune behind to support his family after his death in 1875. Harrison's upbringing was what could best be described as eccentric. His mother was a devout spiritualist, while his sister had a fascination with ghostly tales. Also living with them was a homeopath named Lucy Hudson and her relative, George Hudson. The Hudson family treated young Harrison as one of their own, teaching him how to play piano and instilling in him a passion for natural history. As Harrison got older, he took an interest in butterflies, and although he graduated from MIT with a bachelor's degree in chemistry in 1889, he sought a career in the natural sciences instead. He wrote papers about moths and butterflies and composed his master's thesis at Columbia on the subject of Lepidoptera. He was extremely influential in his field, too, naming roughly 3,000 species of insects and 6,000 types of Lepidopterans by the end of his career. He also raised all kinds of caterpillars and insects on his own, which aided in his thorough and crucial research. One might have thought that Harrison's obsession with insects would have made him a kind of boring guy, a humdrum fellow who was more comfortable with his nose in a textbook instead of out with friends. Well, he was anything but boring, but he definitely didn't spend a lot of time with friends, perhaps because he had so few of them. For one, Harrison had some serious compulsions. He would take notes endlessly, as though there wasn't enough paper in the world to collect them all. He often jotted things down on the backs of receipts and letters, anything within reach. He also had his own system of symbols and shorthand that only he was able to read. His colleagues at the Smithsonian Institution had trouble deciphering his notes. As if that wasn't bad enough, Harrison's fellow entomologists didn't care to be around him either. He would criticize them to the point where they refused to work with him. One man resigned his position at a museum until Harrison was no longer conducting research there. But Harrison didn't alienate everyone. In fact, he was quite the ladies' man, entertaining the affections of not just one, but two women simultaneously. There was his wife, Zella, and another woman named Waleska Pollock. But his wandering affections took their toll on his mental stability. Even after he divorced Zella to be with Waleska, he challenged his compulsions into a new project. He started digging. 
Little by little, the eccentric entomologist dug a series of underground tunnels beneath two of the homes that he owned in Washington, D.C. He dug downward, creating multiple levels with stairs and electrical lighting throughout. He even lined the walls with bricks. The tunnels were dug between 1906 and 1916, after which Harrison moved west to California. But later, in 1924, a truck happened to be driving by one of his homes in Washington, D.C. when the driver felt one of his tires sinking. A hole had opened up in the street, revealing the tunnel system below. Harrison confessed a few days after the accident to having dug the tunnels in his spare time. But that wasn't the strangest part of the whole ordeal. Police and others found German newspapers, dated 1917 and 1918, inside the tunnels, the years we were fighting in World War I. And that begs the more curious question. If Harrison Dyer had been away in California during that period, who had been using his tunnels? Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Everyone deserves a fair shot. Innocent until proven guilty is how the American justice system is supposed to work, although things don't always go that way. But in 1849, justice truly was blind in what was declared one of the fairest and most impartial murder trials in American history. And the whodunit wasn't even the most fascinating part. It was the who solved it. 60-year-old George Parkman was a member of the Boston elite. He had come from a rich family and owned several tenement buildings in the city. He would walk from one slum to the next, collecting his rents at the same time every month, 
and heaven help the person who couldn't pay up. You see, aside from his job as a landlord, Parkman was also a loan shark, and anyone who couldn't pay back what they owed found themselves in a whole mess of trouble. Such as Dr. John White Webster. Webster was a graduate from Harvard Medical School, and also a professor there. However, he had stopped practicing as a doctor and turned to teaching chemistry and geology instead. He wasn't making as much money as before, and he was in severe debt, so Webster had gone to Parkman for help in maintaining his lifestyle. There was just one problem. He couldn't pay Parkman back. He was terrible at managing his finances and wound up mortgaging his gem collection to Parkman to cover some of what he owed. As things got worse, the former doctor went ahead and mortgaged the gems to two other creditors right under Parkman's nose. What he didn't realize at the time, though, was that one of those creditors happened to be Parkman's brother-in-law, who told him about what Webster was trying to pull. Parkman went to the medical school and gave him the ultimatum, pay up or face the consequences. Webster promised that he would have his money by the Friday before Thanksgiving. So Lone Shark Parkman showed up at around 1.45 that afternoon to collect what he was owed. And he was never heard from again. His family believed that he had been mugged for the wads of money that he often carried. It had happened before, so they reached out to the police who started asking around town for information. Local hooligans hadn't seen him, and there was no sign of him in the Charles River either. Finally, they headed over to the medical school to search for any signs of him. Their first stop was the basement apartment of one of Webster's co-workers, a man named Ephraim Littlefield. Littlefield watched as the officers poured over his belongings and looked through his closets to no avail. Littlefield became their prime suspect. Since he lived in the school's basement, he was able to procure dead bodies from local grave robbers at any time, day or night. He also made money on the side by disposing of cadavers from accidental deaths as a result of poor medical care. Littlefield was known to the police already, but they couldn't find any evidence in his apartment, so they moved on to Webster himself. The professor was holed up in his lab next door when he let the police in to conduct their search, and as with Littlefield's apartment, they came up empty there as well. There was, however, a latrine and a locked closet in the lab that the officers asked about. Webster assured them that it was locked for good reason. It was full of explosive materials. The cops left it at that and went on with their investigation elsewhere. But Littlefield knew something was wrong. You see, he spent time in the man's lab as well, usually when Webster was out teaching or gone for the night. But now, whenever Webster left his lab, he locked the door behind him. Webster had also bought Littlefield an eight-pound turkey for him for Thanksgiving, an unexpected gesture from a man who was often in debt and didn't really interact much with his neighbor. So on Thanksgiving, when the medical building was empty, Littlefield took a hatchet and a chisel and started to dig his way through the wall into the pit under Webster's private latrine. And after a few hours of hacking away, he found exactly what he was looking for. The police were called once again, this time to go through the entirety of Webster's lab. Littlefield, you see, had discovered a human pelvis inside the latrine, while officers found dentures and bones in the professor's furnace. And perhaps the most unsettling discovery of all was made in Webster's tea chest. Inside was the gem collection that he had mortgaged three times, under which was a ribcage with a leg inside of it. It seems George Parkman, well, what was left of him, had finally been found. Word about the murder spread throughout Boston. It was the talk of the town. But who had been behind it? Had it been the esteemed professor or Ephraim Littlefield, the man who seemed to know just where to find the body? Maybe he had killed Parkman so that the school had another corpse to dissect. Or perhaps someone had come to him to get rid of it for a small fee. 
everyone was going to find out. Webster was charged with Parkman's murder and put on trial. It was presided over by Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, who happened to be the father-in-law of Moby Dick novelist Herman Melville. It was a case of he said, he said. But after all the evidence had been presented and the witnesses had testified, the jury came to an easy verdict. Dr. Webster was guilty. It was a shock to everyone, especially Webster, who believed that he would be acquitted due to his prominent status within the medical school and the wider Boston community. Unlike Littlefield, he had graduated from Harvard. He was a professor. He must have been framed by a jealous colleague. But that wasn't the case. After the verdict was announced, Webster confessed to having killed Parkman by bashing him in the temple with a piece of wood. He was ultimately hanged for his crimes on August 30th of 1850. And as for Ephraim Littlefield, it was true that he worked alongside Webster. But he wasn't a doctor, nor was he a professor. Littlefield wasn't rich or powerful. He was just a resourceful and curious man with a hunch that had blown a murder investigation wide open. Oh, and he also happened to be the school's janitor. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.